You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have on Aang Tang from Tusi Capital on the show. Aang is an experienced private fund manager with over $100 million in assets under management. Previously, he spent 12 years in private market and real estate investing as an economist by trade at the Wharton Business School, but he also has experience leading data science teams at companies like Apple, Capital One, and AT&T. Aang has a super interesting classical immigrant story that can only happen in America, and I would not do it justice if I tried to tell it here, so we're going to get into that, but I'll stop there and just say, Aang, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. I pretty appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? My favorite ice cream is coconut. Okay. What do you like about coconut? I have this theory out there that people either love coconut or they hate coconut. There's no, it's a very polarizing uh, it is. taste. It is. It is. Um, it, I, I guess, you know, when I eat coconut ice cream, usually there's, there's like real coconut in there. So sometimes I, I like that flavor and the texture. Yeah, um, it's, it's just reminds me like I could eat probably eat a frozen coconut. I don't know this. Yeah, <laughs> that's probably good enough for me too. That's awesome. Um, any toppings on it, or just straight up coconut? Straight up coconut. There you go, classical man. So tell our listeners what's the scoop. What do you do today? What do I do today? I have two young kids, two young boys, one almost three and one six months. And I run uh, Tulsi Capital. We have north of 150 million in real estate. Lily, right before this call, I just got a call that we got on the contract on 164 unit multifamily in Atlanta. Awesome. Man, talk about that. Um, and I also run Bitcoin mining fund uh, farms that we were about to start hashing. And then <laughs> it's a lot of, lot of pots and iron and as well as... Um, Really excited about our nine portfolio community that we're building out in senior living. Um, uh, so, so all of it seems like disparate and potentially like, you know, just a lot, but I've always managed a lot. And I've also always liked to tie them into themes of cash flow and tax manage. That's generally what I go for. I'm pretty you know if you drill into my investment philosophy and thesis it's a pretty traditional thing i like to have asymmetric benefits through illiquid assets and have good cash flow and good tax advantages so that it's just innately you know innately good so that's uh that's that's how i've grown up and built my built my company built my wealth Yeah, I want to talk about crypto after this call, just because that's a space where I know enough enough about it to sound really, really smart to my mom, but really stupid to someone like you. So I kind of want to get your uh, perspective on that and and what you're doing there. Normally, we go into like where your real estate journey began, but I want to actually hear, I want you to tell your story about your history. So I don't want to put any containers around it or any walls around it. So I'll just turn the floor over to you because I think your story is super impactful and super... um, inspiring for a lot of folks. So could you give us a little history of your, your background? Happy to. And it's something that I think is very important to understand why I do what I do now and why I hustle and grind so much. I grew up 
uh, well, my, little bit, it's, it's a little bit of my parents' story versus my story, but I'm happy to communicate that. My parents uh, are Cambodian. They grew up and lived during the Khmer Rouge when around the late 70s, the average life expectancy in Cambodia was 18 years old. Uh, that signifies that there was a significant genocide, uh, which my parents were the targeted audience of Chinese Cambodians, uh, a minor ethnic group in Cambodia. Um, I remember stories of, and it, it reminds me of all these World War II stories uh, of the Jewish um, experience in Europe and very sad stories of my, my dad would have hideouts and, um, you know, you'd hear soldiers come middle night and just take people and never see families again. And so he would like jump from house to house um, and then send my mom through the jungle with my older brother, who's two years older than me. And he was born there in Cambodia. I was born in a refugee camp in Thailand after my parents traversed through the um, Cambodian jungles and made it to safety in a camp um, where I, I also heard stories of how you know, they were hiding from the soldiers because they were there illegally and they would get kicked out if not. Um, and my, my dad always tells me he would have been a big person if, if that didn't happen. Uh, and I believe it, he's, he's, he's a hustler, he's an entrepreneur. Um, and they both never went to high school or elementary school. So it's atypical potentially of a Asian immigrant experience that you might hear of where you have highly educated Asian folks who come to America and and focus on education. I think that's part of my story, focusing on education, focusing on security, focusing on you know having financial security in a world where you had very fleeting moments of insecurity, uh, where I remember chasing chickens in a refugee camp and you know and now I have like I just built a second playground on my very nice house in San Diego. And I think like, man, these kids are spoiled. <laughs> but yeah, you know, what can you do? Um, it, but it, it helps tell the story of both a forgotten ex and tragic experience. Um, you know, that was sort of the aftermath of the Vietnam War. Uh, and there's a significant portion of Vietnamese and Chinese, uh, not Chinese, uh, Cambodian refugees that came to America that were just very poor, they had no education. And that was my parents. We, we, we got settled in LA. Uh, they use, you know, they use different dates for the birthdays. I'm not sure, you know, who, who knows when we were born, this sort of just all a mixed bag of just trying to survive. And I grew up in LA, um, in East LA, and I grew up in poverty. Uh, I grew up in a, I didn't have a room to myself um, until after college, even in college, I was actually bunkmates. Um, but even after when I came home, I would always um, share a bed. I would share a bed with my, my brother. Um, but that was very formative. That was formative because it gave me a sense of what I could survive off. I could survive off very little. And also gave me a sense of what I needed to survive. Um, and for me, I've been, I've, I'm lucky. I'm lucky the fact that I grew up in that experience. I'm lucky the fact that that made me a stronger person. I, I don't look at this as, 
oh, woe is me. This is, you know, terrible. I look at this like, hey, I think I, I'm grateful for, for the food stamps. I'm grateful for welfare. I'm grateful for pulling myself out of it, uh, having four jobs. I'm grateful that my mom, you know, has neck and shoulder pains carrying buckets of water. Um, and I'm grateful that we survived. And I use that gratitude a lot in my application of math and data science in everything I pursue. So I'm going roundabout way of just highlighting that I survived a lot, but it also gave me a sense of purpose, of true purpose, of, of feeling that, you know, whatever life was, you just had to be grateful and you just had to have a very big sense of purpose of this is why I'm doing it. And I was never really clear of exactly why I was never like the person who would pinpoint, I'm going to be a real estate investor. I'm going to do this. This sort of just came to me, but I was always clear that I had to be flexible and adaptable when you're moving around so much, which I did as my childhood, when you're changing positions and changing things a lot and you just didn't have stability. Instability is my, is my constant. Um, change is my constant. Adaption is my constant. I survived through many financial crises. <laughs> I was day trading and I've, you know, I, you know, in high school when we didn't have internet access easily. Um, and I've been good at math, so I've been grateful for that. And grateful to get into Wharton and grateful for going to investment banking and grateful that I got washed out of investment banking because of the financial crisis and went yeah. to Peace Corps where I met my wife who was volunteering abroad and we were at, I was porous uh, we were ever been um, and meet, you know, and then have a family after that. So it, it's, it's a, I should write a book about it eventually, but yeah. it, it's a very interesting story that I'm leaving a lot of hoes in, but um, it, it, it also is a story where interspersed through all that, I felt the need for security. And when you're in a space of insecurity, you you, it's never a good place to be, I don't think. I think when you're, you, you have so many needs and so many you know, wants because you don't have it fulfilled, you make not the best decisions. You don't make long-term decisions. You make short-term decisions. Um, and you think limitly. You don't think abundantly. And one of the things that I've evolved for me has been this abundance mindset of just thinking that, I can do more. I can be more. I and and that's that's highlighted the fact that I went to many different fields, many different um, positions, and I've succeeded in almost every one of them. Um, and I'll keep doing that with the confidence I have. And uh, I hope this story helps people understand that you don't need a lot to, and you don't need a lot, and you should always think of what you have versus what you don't have, because. I don't know if this story could exist for somebody who grew up in the suburbs that I don't think the circuit exists yeah. for my, my son. I'm not sure yeah. what would happen. Yeah. I, I mean, it's super impactful story. I, I think 2020 taught us a lot about pain and disruption in our life. Not nowhere even close to that. I know we were chatting on uh, before we got on here that uh, my 
spectrum changing moment was when I went to Africa and I climbed Kilimanjaro and there were people wearing cardboard on their feet, making $2 to do the trip up and back. And it makes you really be grateful for what you have. And that's what I would encourage people coming out of 2020 to think about is like it disrupted your world. Um, you can either use pain as a demotivator or as pain as a lens to be adaptable, to be flexible, and to think about the next path that you have forward. I, I don't want to breeze over the point, though, that you left Wharton to go into investment banking to then go into the Peace Corps making $200 an hour in a war-torn country. I, I have to ask, like, what was your mindset thinking about there when you're coming from, I'm assuming a high six-figure job, uh, feeling like you had quote unquote made it from you know where your parents had come from to where you were at that point to giving it all up to go pursue this? What, what was inside of you that made you wanna do that? It was $200 a month. Yeah. And, and, and you don't get housing that like you have to use that for housing as well. So it was like really a hundred dollars a month you have to. And I remember going to these bazaars, these markets and haggling over a clove of garlic and one egg. Cause like you want to buy for what you want to eat. And I was, at, I was at my best fit. I, I miss those days of my, my, uh, uh, uh my fitness level. Um, uh, a lot of my friends and colleagues during that time went to MBA. That was sort of the refugee refuge from the financial crisis. You know, um, I was considering that, but I really wanted to experience and resonate and empathize with my parents more. And uh, you know, I always loved volunteering. During Katrina, I volunteered during spring break. Um, I could have partied with other friends, but I. You know, I'm a person who likes to donate the time and money and resources and be generous. Um, that's that's finally who I am, and I and I do that now with helping people, and hopefully I can help your audience, whoever, um, getting into real estate or doing whatever. Right? I am passionate about it, and if somebody's passionate about something, I love to help them. Um, it was the hardest conversation with my parents of trying, like, hey, I'm gonna go do this thing that. It's gonna pay me $20 a month just to survive. And I'm gonna to go to this war-torn country that you know you suffered and survived and got your children out of. And they're like, they're like what? I don't understand this concept of you wanting to go back. Like, you know how terrible that was? Um, but I, I thought it was, it, it gave me perspective. You know, I, I always like traveling. I love traveling to this day. 2020 sucked because I don't get travel. But it, it being a traveler and a visitor is different than being in steeped in a culture and i really wanted to experience that so for anybody who even thinking about peace corps um either do it early in your career or do it late i think that's probably the best times um uh and, and there's lots of many volunteers that were like 60 plus and they just retired great group of guys and folks um it, it, was, it was what was going to my mind was i just wanted to give back and I found an opportunity in the time and space to do so, um, to help another war torn country, Georgia. I, I volunteered in the Republic of Georgia in right after the Russian invasion, a very familiar story. Um, and they annexed Apazia, um, a region that's now semi um, basically it's a conflict region. Uh, and there was lots of refugees and there was lots of live animation on, uh, and there's lots of no-go zones. And we met Senate, uh, at the time Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. We had a escape plan 
had to go these routes and it's very all very exciting also very like um, dangerous dangerous yeah yeah i guess i i gravitate towards experiences yeah because i think it it helps formulate people and uh, and give them understanding all of it's relatable all of it's understandable like i learned another language in 10 weeks i was forced to because my host family and the village i was in no one spoke english and if i wanted to survive i just need to learn um how to communicate yeah be adaptable exactly and i guess the biggest thing i want to tell you audience is like be adaptable guys always be a learner that's going to be the best thing that ever happened i my last job at apple I was leading data science for Siri. Yeah, and data science in Siri is very important. And I learned programming code and hobby data science in the first 10 weeks. And I was leading the teams there. Uh, and before that, I was a product manager. Before that, I was, you know, um, in business management. Um, I, I, think, I think being adaptable just gives you understanding that you can adapt in anything and you can learn anything. And those learning mechanisms help you do almost anything in life. Um, so this. So I'm assuming your parents weren't rah-rah excited that you were going to leave investment banking to go do this. It's a very contrarian point of view. And in fact, you proved later in your career when you left Apple, which I'm assuming leading Siri and being on that team as they developed that product set and becoming the, the platform that it is today is very contrarian as well to leave to go to real estate there's some folks out there that are, are probably in one of two situations. They're either um, thinking about things differently in 2020 and saying, is this the path I want to go on? They're looking to make that move into something different, or they're thinking, hey, I'm tired of trying to keep up with the Joneses and I need to move into having my basic needs set up for me and making sure those are taken care of. And I know that investing, investing in real estate is a great place to do, but it's contrary to the people that they're around every single day. What kind of guidance could you give those people right now that maybe they're having that conversation that you had with your parents about going to Georgia on a much lesser scale, to be clear, um, but it is contrary to what the path that they're on or the people that they're around today. I think you're almost always influenced by people you surrounded with. You know, when I was in Silicon Valley at Apple, working in the big spaceship campus, we always talk about the latest features and releases. And in Silicon Valley, we always talk about the latest apps and IPOs and startups, right? This is just what, you know, we were always on the newest app. If, if we were on Lyft and Uber right before everybody knew about it, we were on the, all these apps that before they came mainstream. Um, and that was interesting, but that was very monoculture as well. Um, one thing that gave me sort of a sense of understanding of, uh, of the value of real estate was I was always investing in real estate. I bought my first property before I went to Peace Corps and I managed it from the Peace Corps and I bought another property when I came back from Peace Corps. How did I have money from it? Because I did a value add and I did it kind of remotely um, uh, and I did, did well enough and the market was good, uh, bought a rest of the financial crisis. Uh, but I say that point because I always had the side hustle of real estate. I used my W3 income to always just accelerate that, to you know, to leverage into that. And I fundamentally believe that having a passive stream of income gave me more boldness, more abundance mindset to even if having a thousand dollars a month, two thousand dollars a month, gives you sort of a sense that you can say no, you can say yes to 
things that you might be scared of, say no to things that you don't feel like you want to have to do out of sense of the need to do it. And, and just having that base layer of support allows you to make bolder decisions. And that's how I finally believe, like I, I got into the highest level IC positions and, and manager positions. And I was always one of the youngest people at every role I was at. And a lot of that I can tell, I can write a whole book about this like, on like how to change jobs and how to navigate corporate culture. But you don't make those decisions if you are living in fear of the next paycheck, of grinding out, keeping it with the Joneses. Um, because you do have a passive stream of income because you have real estate as a side hustle, potentially as a main passion, but you're trying to build up to it um, to then retire. I retired from Apple because I made more money passively from my income um, real estate than I made from Apple, which was very significant. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it really helps to, to give you a different mindset. And, and I'll leave it as a note. Like I talked to a lot of my colleagues at Apple who grinded out the very smart people, the high up level, and they make a lot of money. But that's all they have. Mm-hmm. And they're always grinding on it. And, and because they're so busy and they have so much responsibility and they have families now, they just don't have time and mindset to, to consider doing, making your capital work for you. Um, and so they have to house, they have to stock the RSUs and that's it. And they don't really have to plan B. They just like, I'll just wait until 4K and retire. Yeah. A long time ago. Is, is that what helped you feel like you could make the contrarian move of going from investment banking to Georgia as well? Because at a, at a certain point, you know, you, you were fleeing a genocide, you landed um, in, a, in a poverty neighborhood of East LA and made it to Wharton School of Business, a phenomenal business school. And now you're trading on Wall Street, like your basic needs, as you were talking about earlier, your basic needs had already been met, food, shelter and clothing. So did you feel like because those basic needs were met, you could go do time giving back and not have to worry about, is this going to damage my career and all these other kind of things? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, and I, I never, I never judge anybody who's not generous if, if they don't have the basic needs met. You can never judge anyone's situation. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're mad or upset at that moment because they just have a lot of terrible things going on. Um, and really, if, if you can just alleviate a lot of your concerns, your basic needs, and understand that you don't need that much. You don't need that much to survive, guys. It's lots of people live it less and they're happy. I, I think, you know, we can say folks aren't happy, but like, I think if you have family, if you have, you know, your health, that's really a lot that matters. Yeah, I, I, I've been dying to have this interview since I started the podcast then, because that's it right there. The intentional living of knowing that your passive income covers your basic needs, frees up so much more mental space, whether you go volunteer in the Peace Corps, whether you uh, leave a lucrative job, whether you just show up more intentionally for your kid's softball game, whatever it is, I believe that even having something as small as $1,000 a month or $2,000 a month of investing in a real estate deal or a syndication or something like that will free up mental clarity that you don't even know is blocked right now. So I'm so glad you're on the show because that's the story I'm trying to tell and you just told it. So thank you for that. I want to switch gears though. Um, and talk about the way you look at data. So as I've gotten to know you and have some conversations with you, 
I mean, you are using all of those skill sets around being good at math, seeing patterns, being an investment banker, working with Siri, which is a big data platform, and you're seeing trillions of pieces of information to come up with some kind of end game. How do you use those skills today to help underwrite data or, or underwrite your deals or go find what markets you want to play in today? Yeah. Uh, and before I jump in that, um, I just want to highlight one thing you said. Um, and I love what you said about this, just this passive income stream. I, I, I moved away from day trading and moved away from these volatility assets and having to stress about up and down what the market is doing today. And I gravitated towards conservative cash flow. I invest for cash flow. And I love that feeling of just peace, calm, passivity. Like it's just like here every month. And there'll be some things that happen here and there, but it's very predictable and I love it. Um, and so with predictability of real estate, it, it can be very predictable because it's macroeconomic trends that you have to decide on. The biggest variables that you generally want to look for in investing in a market is publishing growth, job growth, and crime decreasing. Those are publicly available data, and I created models using city data and department of jobs um, and other big uh, public available data. Um, ultimately, that allowed me to create a lot of models that eliminated a lot of cities that I wouldn't invest in. Um, that's not to say that you can't make money in these cities. Ultimately, having these rule of thumbs that are driven by math and driven by numbers and data gives you a competitive advantage above a lot of people. Um, doing a bad deal in a good market can often save the deal, but doing a good deal in a bad market might not save the deal. That's right. Um, you can't fight macroeconomic population depopulation. Um, it depends on your horizon, but I, what I've also learned is that in real estate, it's all—it's almost always about who you know and when you buy it for and the deal you get. So it, it's a little bit contrarian where you have to use math and and strong underwriting. And I use a lot of scripts, um, mostly to evaluate what the norms and averages are to to be faster my underwriting. Because sometimes just being fast in the deal, I, I evaluate probably north of a hundred deals a month, and we're scraping broker data. <laughs> some some of these sites lock me out sometimes, but I like I write code to just break into sites um, and grab them, you know, public, you know, uh, and then and then have uh, a program that just scans some of the market level data that they provide um, because they're on top of things as well, and then just if, make underwriting faster. Because sometimes you have to be fast and you have to go at scale um, to narrow down from you know uh, ten thousand potential acquisitions to uh, to hundred, and then to do deep dive into those hundred and make offers on ten. And I like to consider the lowball offers, hopefully, um, and get an offer hopefully on one, um, which is a big filing effect. Uh, but it, and, and it helps with scale too. Like being able to scale has been one of the biggest benefits of leaving Apple and going to what I do now at Tozi Capital. Having, you know, scaling helps in almost every sense. You know, buying multifamily, threeplex and fourplex, it, you put the same amount of time and effort into one of those and buying a 150 unit property. 
Um, so it, it, and then your variable cost goes down, your standard deviation of outcomes go down, you're, you know, in a duplex, you, it's very binary. You have 50% occupancy, 100% occupancy, 0% occupancy. Um, but with, you know, 150 units, you, it's very predictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love predictability. I can model that out. Um, and with publishing growth, there are certain p-values that allow you to understand how rent will look like. Um, man, and, but then there's also markets that also don't play in these norms, like San Francisco, right? Rent-to-value ratios are mostly dictated by how much people have in rent, what Apple stock is, what Google stock is. Yep. And those, yep. those people can buy a lot and they sink their assets into properties that don't cash flow because they just want to diversify. They just have a lot of money. But when you buy in Midwest, where I buy, um, and Southeast, uh, um, you know, Southeast America, in Atlanta, for example, um, you don't you don't face the same competition. Uh, and, and so it's it's always about pin. It's, it's about filtering, but then it's also about you know like it, these filters are good, but they they'll tell you that Austin is a great market. It's also a very competitive market, and I still want to make money. Uh, and I still want to get cash flow. So you still have to value that value proposition and price to rent ratio in, um, uh, in, in your perspective as well. Yeah, there's two things I want to pull out from um, what you just said there. One is you talked about three things. Uh, population growth, right? Everybody seems to know about population go, go where the people are going. Job growth, everybody seems to know about that, right? Go where the jobs are going and make sure that it's diversified job growth, right? You don't want to just go where one industry is. But I've heard you talk more about crime than I think anybody else as well. Like you want to make sure that the crime statistics, they don't have to be perfect, but at least they're trending in the right area. And uh, my second point that I really kind of wanted to get into was that every syndicator or everybody that doesn't gets involved in real estate has their competitive advantage. We've talked to some folks that only invest in certain markets. We've talked to some folks that only do vertically integrated, meaning they buy the asset, they have a contracting team on their payroll, they have a property management on their payroll. I think your super skill and superpower is the fact that you can go run these scripts to scrape the entire web of free information out there to find what is the areas that we want to play and going back to i think the theme of this episode so far is knowing what to say no to is just as important as knowing what to say yes to and um that's super key so uh we might have you back on the show to get super nerdy because i know i've got some tech folks that listen to this show that were really interested in python scripts and all that kind of stuff um but you, you've brought it up a couple of times before we leave on, on to our five toppings around that I want to get into is that you recently got under contract in a property in East Atlanta. Um, tell us about the property and uh, tell us a little bit about the deal. It's uh, so literally hot off the press. I haven't even, I'm about to go to meet my team to uh, talk about timelines. Um, but it's 164 unit, multifamily value add, very classical value add. There are, it's around $3 below rent and it's $3 below rent because half of their units are renovated. And this very classico of value at multifamily. You, you prove that you can create value through some parts of it. And then you leave, you leave some part of it not created value and you cycle through it because you don't want to saturate the market. Um, with time, you can then renovate them. And so we're doing the classic 
you know, changing out the old flooring, it's 1969 product and we change into vinyl flooring and we change new shaker cabinets and we put a new coat of paint, very light touch stuff, but it will increase rents by $300 and prove it out with local comp comps that are essentially hundred percent occupied. Um, and by doing that, and what, what I love about multifamily and, and, uh, and commercial real estate and I classified multifamily and commercial real estate, um, is the level of control you have on the valuation of the asset. When you sell your house, you, you or a triplex or duplex, it almost doesn't matter what rent you're getting. It matters what your neighbors sold their house for on a sales comparable. And if the mark and that, that makes it that single family houses are more like stocks. There's a lot more liquidity potentially. There's, it goes up and down more, um, but you have very little control. Versus multifamily, where especially large scale multifamily, where if you can, they trade for a certain cap rate, and they trade, and if you can affect the cap rate by increasing the NOI, by increasing top line revenue, decreasing the cost, you can force appreciation. This is sort of like what I did with our value add rehabs, but at a larger scale and very formulaic. Um, so it's, you know, it's going to be north of a 20% IRR return. Um, it's been hard to find multi-value multifamily. It's been hard to find multifamily in general. I believe it is an oversaturated asset class. So you need to have really strong connections in these markets. Um, but it, you know, it, I have another 192 units in Atlanta as well. Um, so I'm, I'm glad to be continue to expand that market. Um, it's a lot of job growth in that market. Yeah, a 20% IRR is really unheard of right now. Uh, so I can't wait to see that deal. And um, I know the first time, one of the first times we connected, we talked about this deal and that you were working on it and you might be able to get it and all this kind of stuff. And uh, that basically the, the premise was that the contractor went in and renovated half the units to show that if you renovated the units, you could get the extra rent. And now they're going to leave some of that meat on the bone for you to go execute that strategy. So I'm super interested in seeing that deal when it comes out. Um, and we're going to shift gears now into our last final questions here. We call these the five toppings. The first question is, what is your favorite book or what is a book that you've read recently that's given you um, uh, good insight? Um, I think The War on Normal People by Andrew Yang, um, uh, who, who advocates for a GBI. And, and, you know, whether you think of GBI or not, you should be thinking of it as passive income. Like the fact that it alleviates a lot of a lot of scarcity mindset and creating abundance mindset. I love the fact that abundance mindset at any level of financial ec economic condition gives you more hope and certain you know hope and gratitude is really going to drive you to wherever you need to be. Yeah, I I want to go into that so deep right now, but I'm going to avoid it because. When I heard him on a podcast explain, you know, we got 20 million truckers out there or whatever the number is, maybe it's 2 million, but certain percentage of those with autonomous vehicles are going to have to switch job functions. And it's not as easy as go learn computer programming in five weeks and work at Apple kind of thing. I mean, it is a big monumental shift. So uh, I don't know, it's some interesting arguments. And, and I think that if you completely are against UBI, you should read it to confirm your thoughts. And if you have no idea what we're talking about with UBI, you should read it to see what your thoughts are. And if you're for it, you should read it to maybe even strengthen your thoughts. But I always believe if, if you're against something, you should still learn about it because chances are 
at the very least, it'll just strengthen your point of view. I, 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 I love that I am able to give my investors $1,000 a month. Yep. Yeah, somebody investing like hundred thousand dollars. Uh, oftentimes, our returns are twelve percent, and so we give them every paid monthly. So I like I, I start thinking like I'm giving them the, a you bet, even though they're investing. So obviously, yep. it's their money, um, their returns, but it gives them a sense of like, ah, feel like security. Yep, yep. Um, the second question is: I believe the person that you become in ten years is directly correlated to the habits that you do every single day. What's something that you do every day? Uh, I I fast every day. I, I do intermittent fasting. Um, I think it keeps me hungry and lean in the morning. Um, uh, and I, I think there's so many health benefits of fasting. Uh, I don't have enough time to exercise. But I know diet is one of the biggest drivers of how you, you, you are. Yeah, another topic I want to nerd out about because I, I, <laughs> most, yeah, most people know I'm like an Ironman triathlete and I'm, I'm, I'm dabbling in the fasting and worlds of difference if you don't eat late at night and you don't eat in the morning how your mind just starts shifting and gets into a flow state better um the third question is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received uh i think the best piece of advice i ever see is um be flexible uh because you know i think when you're so driven you you, you gotta go for excellence in one thing uh, but when you get knocked down and you don't achieve it, it can ruin you, it can wreck you. Um, and if you can, you can like, combine two great things and not 100%, but 90%, you're at like 100% of a specific combination. You know, being flexible gives you the nimbleness to, to survive anything that goes for it, economic, financial, you know, asset class, whatever. Love it. Love it. Um, what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? I'm most proud of helping my family achieve their own financial freedom of, you know, buying my parents a house by having a big why of getting them out of poverty. Um, it was such, such a singular purpose, but also a very flexible purpose. Like it, it gave me a lot of purpose to, to, to achieve that for them. And, you know, it's always been, my family and how I can help them. And, and it's why I also think of my investments sort of as a family business. Like I invest in all of these investments myself and I think of my investors as family and I want them to have the same success and achievements. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm at a loss for words just thinking about how much of a sense of pride that must feel like to come from where your parents came from and to be able to give them a house and some sort of stability and things like that. That's just incredible. Um, the last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Um, I, I, I think it's a very interesting question. I, I, I think, um, I, I've been very much recently in this stoic, uh, philosophy lately. And so Marcus Realist would be a very yeah. interesting person if I could speak Latin, um, just understanding the gravitas of of weight and responsibility and shielding and bearing it very um, well and gracefully. Uh, just, I, I think that's just a fascinating topic to me. Yeah, Meditations is on my reading list and I'm surprised I haven't read it yet. Um, I start reading it and then I get distracted with other things in my life, but Meditations is definitely on my list. Do you follow Ryan Holiday at all? Uh, no, but I will. Yeah, he's, uh, he's kind of, uh, 
made his money in apparel and uh, like super young, wrote a couple books on ego is the enemy and uh, different stoic philosophies. And he puts out some good content as well. Kind of the mar- modern day Marcus Aurelius without being an emperor of Rome. Um, hang super impactful conversation. I'm going to definitely bring you back on because I want to nerd out on some of your uh, Python scripts and just different ways that you scrape data okay. and write code around that. Um, but if our, our listeners wanted to find out and uh, more about you or reach out to you, where's the best place we could point them? Uh, go to my website, sign up. Uh, there's open deals right now. Reach out to me via email. Hopefully it's on show notes, eng, E-N-G at Tozi Capital, T-O-U-Z-I Capital.com uh, or Tozi Capital.com. Once you sign up on my website, I have usually once a month or maybe twice a month education webinars. I just love educating people. And, and I find that I learn so much by learning something yesterday and teaching them it today. Um, I, I, I started this whole thing because I realized oh, I could like save so much taxes on using real estate. I pay zero percent in federal taxes now. And I love just talking about it because I remember paying so much taxes when I was in Apple. And so like, just like my passion for what I know and what is helpful for people, it just, it's just, it drives me. And so, so I, if you can get on my, my newsletter, hopefully you, you get uh, the same experience and exposure. Yeah, you're going to become my new best friend because taxes are my devil right now. So <laughs> I'm super interested in hearing how I can lower that. But uh, thanks, saying super impactful story, but also really in- insightful uh, tips on like how you underwrite data and figuring out which markets you want to play in. And I can't wait to have you back on the show soon. It was great. It was great talking to you, Matt. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.